Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Hello, everybody. It is February the 19th. Uh, In our COVID world, sometimes I wake up and think maybe it was all just a bad dream and that COVID was uh, something that will go away, that will be disinfected from our lives. Uh, Unfortunately, that's not the case. The headlines still are COVID-centric. Less the disease now, more about the vaccine, about how we're going to get them, about people stashing them in their backyards. The numbers are going down, but they're still real. Um, A lot of the issues are the relationship between U.S. states and the stockpiles from nursing homes and second doses. And then we have more and more weird stories, of course. This one is today about two women dressed up as grannies trying to get vaccinated in Florida. I think uh, most people in, 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 in Florida are uh, dressed up as grannies trying to do one thing or another. Uh, so what is the truth about COVID and particularly the American government's response? My guest today on the show has a very critical take uh, on, on what he sees, I think, as the disaster of the U.S. government's response to COVID. Um, he won't be well known to all of you. He's a he's a pretty well known guy in Silicon Valley, although he's left Silicon Valley as well. He's a former venture capitalist, and now he's the chairman and co-founder uh, of a new COVID technology or anti-COVID technology company called R Zero. Ben Boyer, uh, Ben. To start off with, uh, we were chatting beforehand. You said that you thought that the American government's response to COVID was one of the great disasters in U.S. government and indeed in any government history. Uh, it's a pretty pretty radical statement. What went wrong? Um, I'm, I, I'm curious to know what you, you would think, what went right. Um, you yeah, know, what, well, I was going to, that was <laughs> probably that, that, that has a, certainly a shorter answer, what went right. No, let's, I, let's focus on what went wrong first. Sure. I mean, you know, I think the uh, healthcare response from the get-go was botched. Um, you know, we had a president that downplayed the severity of it. Um, and I think that set in motion- well, to put it mildly, Ben, downplayed. I mean, he basically lied about it, right? He, 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 he very much did. Uh, and, uh, and I think that set in motion a lot of challenges as uh, the CDC wrapped their, their, their head around the problem and started to try to iterate around solutions with regards to social distancing, shelter in place, and, uh, and wearing masks. And so, you know, I think it starts with uh, the commander in chief. Um, you know, there was a moment in time, I believe it was in April, uh, where I felt like the country was totally broken. And uh, it was uh, when the states were competing with one or an- another for PPE, um, fighting, you know, between each other for ventilators and, and medication and masks. And uh, the fact that the federal government didn't step in to try to manage this. Um, and allocate based on population or need 
as opposed to the states that were best funded or or, or uh, represented a better long-term customer post uh, the the pandemic. Um, and and you know I, again, it, I think it started at, at the top. Beyond just the public health response, uh, you know, you have the economic damage that came from the decision to shelter in place, which I totally support. Um, we spent $2.2 trillion in, in the initial CARES funding, um, and we still have uh, unemployment that's even higher than the highest uh, it was during the Great Recession. Um, you know, I think if you look at England as a model where uh, they were uh, guaranteeing 80% of an employee's salary up to 2,500 pounds a month, so long as the company kept them on payroll, you could see a model that makes a lot more sense uh, to you know, mitigate uh, some of the economic damage. Um, but I really think the problem you know, predated the actual discovery of, of COVID-19. It was um, you know, years of slashing uh, the critical safety net, uh, the budget for the CDC, um, their funding of epidemic prevention, um, our ability to respond with, with, with tracing, um, simple mechanisms which had an incredible impact on places like Taiwan and Korea and China. And mm -hmm. I was going to ask you that, Ben, to what extent, and a lot of people in Silicon Valley are looking east rather than west, are the Korean, the Taiwanese, even the Chinese models of kind of effective technocracy from the top, are they the models that work in your mind? It, they certainly worked this time. Um, you know, I think uh, there, there, there was a better implementation of basic technology around tracking people, and and that's a challenge in the U.S. Um, because of privacy and and a lot of the freedoms that that, that we get to enjoy. Um, but that tracing capability was very impactful in isolating people that had been exposed, um, segmenting the population, and and really you know uh, buttressing. The spread, um, you know. Additionally, there's just been an acceptance of of some of the more obvious technologies like UVC uh, in places uh, like Asia. Um, it's been used in airports to disinfect uh, the railings uh, on escalators, uh, where they have a box that just every single time it passes through a single point, it disinfects it. Um, but these these are differences um, in the way that they view pathogens. You know, it's it's not surprising to see people pre-COVID in Asia wearing masks just in large social gatherings, and and that's really rare in the U.S. So I think it was a lot of things, but I do believe that uh, there was better response at the top of of those countries. Great children's books open up new worlds for discovery. With Literati Kids, your child can explore uncharted places every month with spellbinding stories handpicked by experts. Literati Kids is a try-before-you-buy subscription book club. Each month, Literati delivers five vibrantly illustrated children's books, bringing the immersive magic of reading right to your home. Literati's age-based book clubs ensure appropriate reads for your budding bookworm, whether they're snuggling with you for story time or letting their imagination roam free. Each book bundle is thoughtfully tailored by education experts with five stories meant to spark new interests and nurture a healthy curiosity. 
No more sorting through hundreds of titles trying to guess what your child will cherish. Literati sends you the best in children's literature. Choose to purchase the ones they love and send the rest back for free. From art and adventure to tales of compassion, each literati box follows a new enriching theme. With personalised extras like stickers, surprises and special guest artwork, each box is a fun and fresh adventure. Head to literati.com slash keenon for 25% off your first two orders. Select your child's book club and start them on a literary journey like no other. Literati.com slash Keenon is the only place to find 25% off your first two orders of this one-of-a-kind book subscription, the most joyful way to foster a lifelong love of learning. That's literati.com slash Keenon. Well, before we get into our zero and a post-COVID, a hopefully a post-COVID world, um, I know in 2008, you were an associate at Lehman Brothers Venture Partners. So you saw the 2008 crisis very much up front, the subprime mortgage crisis that almost melted down the entire world's financial system, certainly the American system. We came this close uh, to, to crashing the entire system to, to what? And then I know that triggered your entry into venture and as an entrepreneur coming out to Silicon Valley. Um, to what extent does the COVID crisis compete with the subprime crisis of 2008 in terms of revealing the, the architectural defects of American capitalism? Yeah, I, I I think we're we're usually reasonably good at piecing things together after there's been um, a, a massive destruction of something um, in this country. We don't tend to to do it ahead of time and try to get ahead of a problem. Um, all that said, I mean, I think a lot of the policies that were put in place um, post the financial crisis, you know, a lot of that was undone um, or attempted to be undone by the Trump administration. Um, you know, uh, it's it's interesting. One of the the big changes in Europe that took place after the financial crisis was uh, preventing these naked shorts. Um, the uh, legislation was actually targeting hedge funds that were going after banks. And if you lose your banks, uh, you get into a very difficult situation of of keeping the economy going. Um, and in the United States, we 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 still allow the the short sellers, the naked shorts. Uh, to take positions, and and that's what you saw with GameStop and uh, and, and a, a couple of hedge funds that got in a very bad position because of uh, the Reddit community and their dis decision to purchase um, large volumes of of stock. But um, yeah, I'm hoping what comes out of COVID um, is a greater appreciation for pathogens. These things have been around forever. Um, it took uh, pathogens being uh, viruses. It, yeah, it, it's 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 uh, it, uh, any, any form of, of virus that can make someone ill. Um, and if you go back in history, we've had pandemic after pandemic. We've had pathogens that have uh, not turned out to be pandemics, but caused you know ill or harm in different places. 
Um, but I, I do believe that coming out of this, the, the scar tissue will be real. And I think there will be an expectation uh, by consumers, employees, teachers, uh, that the places they go into are not just going to be cleaned anymore. They're going to be disinfected. Well, before you- we get to disinfection and, 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 and your products, do you think that the American government should have just said, look, the American system is based on free enterprise, the smartest people in the country, the Jeff Bezos's, the, um, uh, the, uh, the Ben Boyers of the world. They're all entrepreneurs. They're all in the startup world. Let's just give, let's just give Bezos and, and, and the rest of uh, big tech uh, the responsibility for fixing this. Should that have been done? Um, no. Um, and I, I think, you know, big tech, uh, and I'll, I'll call out a, a large social network, um, is it's proven does over it and with an FB. It, it does, uh, has proven, uh, over and over to, I believe not be a, a uh, you know, a, a, a great steward for, uh, people's information, um, and, and really keeping track of the content that's being shared on, on their platform. And so, no, I don't believe the answer was to throw the keys to any tech company. I think the United States has benefited since its foundation from entrepreneurs and this willingness to work 80 hours a day and try to create 80 something. 80 hours a day? I, even, I don't think even I mean, you a week, excuse a me, excuse me, 80 hours a week uh, and create something out of nothing and, and, and try, to, try to build. And uh, that, that has more times than not, um, been a real positive in this country's uh, history. And I think you see organizations like Pfizer and Moderna be able to create vaccines in a, in a period of time that we never thought would ever be possible. And, and, and that, I believe, is the free market you know, working and working well. Um, I think that when it comes to tracking individuals and people, uh, I, I do think there, there, there needs to be something um, I don't think throwing the keys to, uh, uh, you know, different tech companies is necessarily the answer. And I think there is a place for government uh, to come in and try to provide that level of, of, uh, of data and tracking that can be useful to, to mitigate problems like this, because this won't be the last one. Where um, are we in the crisis, Ben? Are we, um, are we at the beginning of the end, the end of the beginning? Will this thing be done by the end of the year 2021? Uh, COVID will be endemic. There's zero doubt. I, I think in in my mind and and everything that I've read makes it sound like um, it it got it it got too big too fast and it will never go away. Um, like the flu, it, yeah, uh, like the flu. Uh, but the flu uh, that th- this might be a higher mortality flu for the foreseeable future. Um, if you look at the common cold, there's a, a handful of different varieties one of which um, uh, epidemiologists now believe was actually a coronavirus back um, in the 1800s. It was called the Russian flu. Um, People now speculate it wasn't in fact a flu, but it was a coronavirus very similar to COVID-19. And that over many, many years of being endemic, it was reduced down uh, to something as as mild as a cold. Um, I think that's the path we're going to be on with this. There are a number of mutations that we have to continue uh, to to stay in front of. And so I think that the vaccines that we're all so excited to get are going to have to be uh, changed very regularly to stay in front of it. Uh, But I think all of that is doable, particularly with the platforms that Pfizer and Moderna had built. 
Um, so I think for the most part, you are going to see uh, there will be cases. There will be cases in the United States, uh, but the rate of which uh, are going to be declining precipitously. And I, I think what we're seeing right now is uh, in under uh, an undercount of the number of people that have actually had COVID. Um, I think that's why cases are dropping so quickly is that we actually do have some herd immunity in certain communities, and, and that is uh, fending off uh, additional spread. Tell me the story then of R0. You said in April you thought the whole system was falling to pieces, that the American system was essentially broken. Um, and I think it was around then that you founded R0. You began to to work on R0, which is called a, a new standard for disinfection. Here we have a, a rather high-tech uh, photo of, of, of the R0 disinfection. When I think of disinfection, I disinfectant, I think of sprays, but this is clearly much more high tech. Yeah. You know, it, it, I was sitting on my couch in early March, probably like you, you know, watching the world get really messy. And, you know, for me, it reminded me a lot of the same emotions I was having uh, back when, when September 11th happened. Um, I distinctly remember where I was sitting when I heard about the planes. And I remember thinking to myself at that time, this changes everything. Um, I, I thought a lot about what changes did take place after 9-11. You know, we formed the Department of Homeland Security. We hired 14,000 TSA agents. We've all flown on a flight with an air marshal. And to this day, you can't wear your shoes or carry a water bottle through security. And what I didn't know in March, but we know now, is against every dimension, this is worse. Uh, the economic damage is worse. The loss of life is worse. Um, we, we don't know what it's going to happen to people that, that, that have this, uh, that have had it, um, long, long into their lives. And, and so that feeling, uh, really got me to start researching, well, there's gotta be something that we, we can do. Um, you know, I, I, I thought the decision to shelter in place in March when we didn't understand what this was, was heroic. Um, and I'm glad that we did it. And I, I know it saved a lot of lives, but I also knew that it was not, possible to keep the economy shut down uh, until we had a vaccine or, or everyone uh, achieved her, herd. And uh, so I started to think there must be an organization out there that's done a good job at dealing with pathogens. And after a lot of staring at my walls, I, I came up with a hospital. And if you think about it, ever since the advent of the hospital, it's the one communal gathering place for sick people. It's always been that way. And if generally speaking, you can go into the hospital and receive care, and not get sick. And if you're a frontline worker and you can provide care, and generally speaking, you, you don't get sick, they're obviously doing something right. And so that started a bunch of research into understanding what do hospitals do? And it turns out that it's actually quite simple. They, they effectively have three things that they focus on. One is hands. So hand hygiene is incredibly important. Um, that's actually one of the big societal changes that took place after the Spanish flu. Before the Spanish flu, it was not uncommon for medical practitioners to interact with patients without washing their hands. It was a Red Cross nurse that recognized that there were worse outcomes with those that were not uh, scrubbing out and scrubbing in, and, uh, and that changed uh, healthcare forever. Um, the next thing they use is just what you said, which is chemicals. Um, these can come from Ecolab, Clorox, S.E. Johnson, Zep. Uh, Kimber uh, Kimberly Clark, PNG, 
Um, each of those businesses is 100 to 150 years old, and they all sell, in essence, the same products that they sold back then. But those, those are still in use and very viable. The third thing that we learned about uh, or that I learned about uh, was the use of UVC light. Um, I, I can't tell you I was an expert in it back then, but I fell in love with this idea that there was a way to do a touchless disinfection and not require a caustic chemical. It sounds um, magical to me. Yeah. It, it turns out that uh, the history of UVC is, is, is old, um, which means there's a lot of science behind it. Uh, it was first discovered in the late 1800s. Uh, a guy by the name of Niels Finson uh, won the Nobel Prize in medicine in 1903 for his work with germicidal UV. Uh, it's been used to treat wastewater since the 1910s, HVAC since the 1920s. Okay, so, so, so I get this, Ben. So are you producing these, pro, uh, are, are you building these for hospitals or for shopping malls and airports and even for, for our homes? Yeah, so uh, it's it's not for home use uh, at this point. Um, we we looked at the units that are being used to disinfect in hospitals and uh, what we, we we got very excited about their efficacy but they're extremely expensive. Uh, typical hospital unit can run $125,000. And so uh, our thesis was, if we can build something that has uh, the same efficacy, but we price it cheaper, we might be able to help out and get organizations uh, back to operations during COVID, get schools reopened uh, in restaurants. And so our initial target was all the organizations that have never been able to afford hospital grade disinfection. And so we've sold it into about 100 schools, uh, I think seven professional sports teams. And does this speak in, in terms of what we were talking about before? Does this speak about the the agility of entrepreneurs and startups versus the, the U.S. government? Yeah, I, uh, I think this would be a great case study in, um, uh, you know, an ability to move quickly. We we incorporated the business in April and we shipped our first product in September. Um, and so we moved incredibly quickly and, uh, and I, I do not believe, uh, if, if the federal government was funding a project to build something like this, it would have moved as fast. It's interesting, Ben, that not only, uh, are you, uh, an entrepreneur conforming to the, the uh, you know, the, I would say that not the stereotype, but certainly the idea of a, of an agile, aggressive entrepreneur dealing immediately with a crisis, but you're also a Silicon Valley guy who left the Bay Area last year uh, for Park City, Utah. Certainly the images here are very attractive. Um, <laughs> tell me about this, this uh, shift for many investors and entrepreneurs from the Bay Area to places like Park City, Utah. Yeah, I've, I've always loved uh, the outdoors and the mountains, and I had always dreamed of, of living um, uh, up in the mountains at some point. And COVID was the great enabler. It was this moment in time where I could still do my venture capital job. I would just do it on a Zoom call and things function just as well as, as they had when I had an office in Portola Valley. Um, and so I think uh, there's a lot of people that, that probably felt the same way I did. I love San Francisco. Um, I think the 20 years I spent there are going to be some of the uh, the most you know meaningful of my entire life. You love or loved? I love. I still love it. But um, it's a hard place to live. Um, you know, I, I had uh, many two-hour drives to and from San Francisco 
for for meetings very regularly. Um, you know, it's 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 not the easiest place. Uh, uh, you know, to to raise a family, there's a lot of pressures. I think that uh, you know some of the communities put on the kids, and uh, you know my family and I were very excited about the opportunity um, to try something new. And finally, uh, Ben, uh, you 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 talked about the long term impact of 9/11. Now, when we fly, uh, we take a lot of stuff for granted that would have been unimaginable before September the 11th, 2001. In 10 years, what are the one or two or three things that COVID will have profoundly changed about how we live? Yeah, I, I think uh, first and foremost, we are going to have disinfected spaces. And it's, it's not just surfaces, it will be air. Um, I think the new normal will be hand sanitizer in, in every uh, public place. And I suspect you're going to see a, a large pop part of the U.S. population wear masks. Um, even when there's not a lot of cases. And so and vaccine passports. Are we going to have to compromise some of our privacy for security and safety? Yeah, it'll, it will be interesting. I think most countries will adopt it. Um, I don't know if it's going to be the same uh, privacy concerns that we've we've faced in, in the past in the United States. Um, I think it's a great idea. Um, I think we do have to work through a, an issue of there are people that because of pre-existing conditions cannot get a vaccine and how do we deal with them and how do we create some level of um, uh, an equitable you know, uh, environment for them. And so there's, there is going to be some trade-offs and, and privacy is certainly one of them. But I think um, the net result of getting people back, reactivating the economy, these are, these are good trade-offs. Well, Ben, uh, uh, ben, ben Boyer, the chairman and co-founder of R0, um, stay safe in park city utah don't enjoy it too much uh <laughs> feel sorry for all of us left in the bay area best of luck with r zero i think it's a really interesting project and we'll talk to you again when um when these devices will be everywhere including airports and hospitals thank you so much ben thank you have a great day be safe you've been listening to keynote hosted by me andrew key Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week. And thanks so much for listening.